One of the most popular ways that the New Testament speaks about the Christian life is as a walk. This shouldn't be surprising since Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. This summer at Holy Cross, we're looking at how we are called to follow Jesus. What are the distinctive practices of the Christian life? Why do we do those things? And how does the perfect and finished work of Jesus change how we approach living? Join us as we take a sustained look in the scriptures at The Walk. We're taking this summer to uh, look topically at what it looks like to live out the Christian faith. Normally during the, during the fall and the spring, we, we will normally uh, we're, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll go through a Bible verse by verse, something called expository uh, preaching. But during the summers, because of travel and all that stuff, we look topically. And we're looking topically what it looks like to live the Christian life. And that's pretty broad, right? So specifically, we're looking at what are the central practices of the Christian life? What are the, what are the, why do we do them and how do we do these in our context, right? Because some of those practices are going to look different doing them here than, say, if we were a church full of people in Central Africa or, or in uh, Southeast Asia, something like that. Uh, we've looked at uh, a number of things. Several weeks ago, we looked at repentance, right? We did two weeks on that. Repentance is really just turning away from one thing and turning towards another. And then last week, we looked at worship, like what we're doing here, as a central act. And then this week, we turn to the reality that Christians seem rather obsessed with this, this book. I mean, if you, if you, have a, if you talk to a Christian long enough, hopefully it's not too long, you're talking to them about their faith, at some point they're going to talk about the Bible or about Scripture. Um, Christians are a people of the book. I mean, obviously that's true here in this place, right? We've already used the term called worship, we've read it a couple times, I'm about to read from it again. But also this is true of us individually. But why is this? And to what end, right? That's what we're going to take a look at this morning. So if you have your place in Psalm 1, right at the beginning of the Psalms, if, if you can stand in honor of God's word and start have it here, let me read the whole thing. It sounds really intimidating. This is God's word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law. Of the Lord, and on his law it meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and all that he does is prosperous. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word given to us in my Father, in the midst of our confusion or our anticipation and eagerness or maybe even our hope, we ask that you come and that you join us to speak your word to us as we just said. We don't need helpful hints. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ to our very hearts. And if our hearts are to receive it, Lord, it will be because of your Holy Spirit is active. So Lord, we pray that you would open our ears, soften our hearts, and help us to hear this morning. Christ and his cross come before the one who speaks has always followed the wayside because you alone are the words of the eternal. So we ask all this in Christ. Have seen you. So I forgot to mention that there's a little register thing that's going around. That is not a tennis register. That is for if, um, if you're a member of regular tender here and uh, we're, we're redoing our, our uh, directory. And so if you didn't sign last 
last week and put your updated information, please, please do that this week. That'll help us. Okay? All right, here we go. So, what if, what if God spoke? It's an interesting idea, right? But that idea presupposes some things. It, it first and foremost presupposes that there is such a one that we would call God, first and foremost. Secondly, it presupposes that God is a person because forces don't speak, right? Speaking is something that is a revelation of a person. Uh, and so it supposes that God is a person, but it also supposes that this God desires to be known. If someone doesn't speak to you unless there's a desire to be known. And, and so, you know, the reality is that most of us culturally, though, we incline ourselves to a different view. One, one that came first on the scene, oh, about uh, 300 years before the birth of Christ. And the Greek philosopher by the name of Epicurus, uh, in, in, in this guy's view, in the Epicurean view, uh, God, or the gods, depending on your view, is distant, right? Very distant. Perfectly happy in and of himself, doesn't really care much for the, for the world of men and women and people. Like, this doesn't really care about it. Why is he perfectly happy? Do whatever you want. Get happy like me. Like, look, we, we call it deism, right? But, but it actually, uh, you know, this was something that was going on in the world like uh, 2,000 years before Thomas Jefferson was born. So it's, it's actually common. But, you know, the thing about this view, the thing about the view that, because many of us do share this, is that it has always historically been held by people who are relatively fairly wealthy, fairly independent, and don't want anyone, especially God, to come in and say anything to them to disrupt that. Christianity, though, teaches something different. It teaches that God is a person, that God desires to be known, and that God speaks into our lives. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at this passage, Psalm 1, in three different ways. Okay? We're going to look at the path of blessing, first and foremost, and then we're going to look at the path of perishing, and then we're going to parse our path. That's a lot of P's. Okay? The path of blessing, the path of perishing, and then parsing our path. There's an outline your bulletin, but that's helpful. Well, let's get started. Okay? Now, before we actually get to the path of blessing, let me say something about this text. When I ask you this morning to turn to the book of Psalms, my guess is there's someone who's like, I don't even know what that word means, right? Because that's not a word that's in our normal de- dictionary we use all the time. Uh, the Psalms, which are right in the middle of your Bible, like if you open about halfway, you're going to get to them. The Psalms are like the prayer book, the hymn book of Israel. It's, it's how uh, God wanted his people to, to sing and pray. They're poetic. They communicate tons of emotion. And there's the, the way that they communicate gives word to our experiences, right? They communicate things like joy, but also anger, disillusionment, and hopelessness, and depression, and, and, and rage, and excitement. Uh, they they, they, they uh, communicate relief and sorrow. The Psalms are a wealth of emotional experiences. And they were written by a bunch of folks. You know, some of whom we know, dudes like uh, names like Asaph. Sons of Korah and, uh, and David, like King David, like uh, David Goliath, David, right? Killed the giant. So what happened was they wrote these, and then they were collected and put into the Old Testament. And this particular one, Psalm 1, was chosen to be the introduction of the whole thing. Okay? So that's the Psalms. And this psalm lays out two ways, right? The first is the path of blessing. Now, the very first verse says that, right? It says, blessed is the man. Now, we're going to get to what that word means in a second. But, but let's look first at what this blessed person is doing. Look down at verse 2. He says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
So foundational to this dude's blessing is the fact that he's delighting in this law and he's meditating on it all the time. So let's break that down. Okay? First off, the, the idea of delight should be fairly self-explanatory, right? You know what delight is. Enjoying something, uh, we get that. Um, but this idea of the law of the Lord, that is not. Because when you and I hear law, we think regulations, right? Uh, um, we think uh, rules. But in, the, in, the, in many places in the Bible, and especially, especially here in this place, saying the law is shorthand for saying God's word. Right? It's, it can be shorthand for saying God's word. God word God's word includes law, but, but it places that law within a story. And I know, I know most of us kind of have grown up or been, been uh, taught that, that the Bible is really just kind of a bunch of rules to follow, but it's not. It's a story. It's a story of God creating the world, of us betraying him, and then God pursuing us to reconcile us to himself. Right? That's, that's the, there it is. Here's the Bible in three phrases, okay? God creates the world good, we, we betray him, turn, you know, mess everything up, and he pursues us to reconcile us to himself. So the law means, in this case, the Bible. But the bigger issue than just what is the law is the fact that it's the law of the Lord. Okay, now listen close. This is important. The Bible presents itself not as the religious reflections of pious people, nor as just kind of uh, the good advice of gurus. The Bible presents itself as God's very word. Now when I say that, that is not to say that it wasn't written by people, right? Some of those people are identified, some are not. People like uh, the Apostle Paul or uh, Peter or, uh, or David like we have in a lot of the Psalms. Uh, it's not to say that, that it wasn't written by people. It is to say that God was in control of the process of writing such that without suppressing their personality, because look, if you read one of the books of the Old Testament and jump over into the New Testament, you can tell them, two different dudes wrote this. This book did not drop down out of heaven fully formed. It's not, he didn't suppress their personalities. However, in it, he was in control of the process that it still communicated his self-revelation to us. So that means that these are not outdated, hopelessly cultured ideas. This is God's very word to us. And the theological word that we put to that is, it, it means that the, that the Bible is inspired, which means that it is a process that finds its, its root, its foundation in God. He breathes it out. But it also means that the Bible is true, right? This is God's word, and God doesn't lie, and so, so it must be true. And Jesus said, spoke to this one. When he's, um, he's, he said something that got everybody riled up, and he said, well, look, guys, look, how it says this in the Bible, like in, in the scriptures that we hold in, and the scriptures can't be broken. In other words, he's saying, like, it, it can't be, those things are true, they are all true. In other words, in what it tends to, intends to communicate what the Bible intends to communicate is without error. And, and our uh, kind of the, the theological churchy work we put with that is the word inerrant. The Bible is inspired and it is also inerrant. So that our psalmist, which is another way to say the person who wrote the psalm, okay? The psalmist is saying that the blessed person delights in God's word, meditates on it day and night. In other words, he orders his life around it and enjoys it. The results of this are in verse 3 right here. The guy says this. He uses a garden image. The guy who orders his life around God's word is like a tree planted by water that bears tons of fruit and whose leaves never wither. Now, 
If you break this whole thing down, what you would notice is that these verses, verse 3, is meant to highlight to us, to illustrate to us what it means when he says blessed. This is what a blessed person is. This is what I mean when I say blessed. Now, here's the reality. Trees and deserts don't mix. Right? That should go without saying. Trees and deserts don't mix. The, the first readers of the psalm would have lived in a very arid condition. We would call it a desert. Okay? Now, and, and if they're reading there, you know that every once in a while a tree might pop up. Like, like come up through the arid ground for whatever reason. But over time, it's going to die because it, it can't live. It's not made to live in the desert. And he says, look, the guy who is blessed is like a tree being placed where it was meant to be placed. Beside a stream where it can get nourishment constantly. And when a tree is able to get the nourishment it needs, it flourishes. It flourishes. That's what he means by the word prosperous. It doesn't mean, when he says that the dude's life prospers, when he doesn't mean he succeeds in everything he does. It's a false gospel that is, that is not what the Bible says. What it says is that he flourishes. In other words, he's living in the life that he was made for. And so the writer is telling us that we, you and I, flourish as we delight and meditate on God's word. And that's basically what the word blessed means. That's what that word blessed means. It means, it means flourishing. And in the Bible, specifically, it's pointing towards an emphasis on a right relationship with God. A blessed person is one who is flourishing in a relationship with God. And apparently, the writer seems to believe that this takes place because God has spoken and we are ordering our lives around what he says. Now, that sounds weird to us, right? Sounds very strange to us. But that, that fits right in with the story that the Bible tells because the Bible tells us that is exactly what we were made for. Okay? Follow me for a minute. Like I said before, the Bible says that God created all things, created the good, and he placed us uh, in the world, not so that he could abandon it. It's not like he said, okay, y'all are good, take care of things, I'm going to go be happy over here. He placed us in the world to be in relationship with us. We were made for him, to be in relationship with him, to know Him, to depend on Him, to love and be loved by Him. That is what we were made for. It's not an addendum. It's the core principle. That is what we were made for. Now, it only makes sense if that is the case, that we flourish as we hear from God, as we enjoy Him speaking to us, and as we meditate on those words, right? If we're made for Him, but we're living in a way in which we aren't hearing him speak, then we are living against what we're made for. Does that make sense? You all with me? Now, of course, some of us right now are like, yeah, look, right? I don't read the Bible. I hear from God in nature. Or I hear from God when I'm like, I got a good workout in. Or, uh, or maybe like when I'm listening to a beautiful symphony. Right? Let me put it this way. If you were to go to the city of Florence, out in one of the plazas is a statue. Tall naked dude, standing like this. His name's David, right? It's a statue of David. It was created by a guy named Michelangelo, right? Around the time Renaissance. It's a beautiful work of art. And you can gaze at that statue and you can begin to appreciate the creative glory of the guy who made it. The man was a genius. And he was able to create insane amounts of beauty out of a block of marble. He created this. And, and so if, if you were to, you would learn a little about, like, wow, this guy was amazing. And then maybe you can read some history books. You can read about what some of the things that he's done or did uh, 
throughout, throughout his life and all the other things he made. And maybe you can even get some accounts from other people about things that he did. But you do not know Michelangelo by staring at the statue of David. You do not know Michelangelo by reading about things that Michelangelo did. You only know Michelangelo if Michelangelo were to talk to you, to speak to you, to reveal himself to you. truly want to know a person, they have to reveal themselves to you. Nature is great, but it is not enough. Beauty is transcendent and insufficient. You and I were made to order our lives around God's word. But the problem is we don't, right? I don't care if you're a Christian in this place, you've been a Christian for like 40 years, or, or if, if you just walk in and you don't believe any of the stuff I'm talking about. We don't do this. Something has happened, and whatever it was that we were made for, we are on a decidedly different path. So that brings us past the path of blessing down to the path of perishing. Listen, this psalm is unapologetic about the fact that there is another way of being in the world, right? It's one of the things I love about the Bible, is the Bible you know, does not blush at the realities of life, the realities of the world. It doesn't try and sugarcoat them or make them seem like they're not as bad as what they are. It's very honest. This is the way it is. And this is the way most of the world is. This is the way the world shouldn't be, but it, it doesn't mince words. The man who is blessed does certain things, but the first thing we are told is what he doesn't do. Look at verse 1. It says, The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. Now stop there. A ton of questions here. Let me try and answer a few. First, we have three different phrases here, and all of those are meant to say slightly different things. But have one thing that's meant to be understood as the same. When he says the wicked, sinners, or scoffers, he's talking about the same person. Okay? He's talking about the same person. Now, when you and I hear wicked, we normally think like uh, witch, right? W wicked witch, evil witch putting sleeping curses on people. Or, or maybe we think like a serial killer, like someone who's vastly, truly evil in, in our minds. But the Bible is better than a different definition of that. We've got to come to grips with it. But to understand what the Bible says about that, we have to return to the story. So, so bear with me. We were made for relationship with God, but something changed. And that something, according to the Bible, is that at, at a point in time, we, we stopped ordering our lives around God's word, about what he says, about how he says things are supposed to work, and we began ordering our lives around a different one. You see, in the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, the third chapter of Genesis, it says we listen to a lot. We listened to a lot that God's word wasn't trustworthy. God didn't really say that. That God wasn't really out for our good. That, that his motives were bad. That, um, God, you're not going to actually die. You know? In fact, you're going to become like him. He really, he's trying to hold you back from what you were actually made for. So we believe that God's word wasn't trustworthy. His motives were bad. He's trying to restrict us from our potential. Does that sound familiar? Because that is like our cultural idea of exactly what the Bible is. Right? The Bible is like a book that is, that is meant to be a killjoy that comes in to ruin our fun, to keep us from what we want, uh, to, to hold us back, and to keep us under someone else's power. Like, that is the core value of our culture, not just with the Bible, with anything that happens with authority. And so, when we believe that lie, we betray God and we turn from Him. Now, here's the thing. Uh, the kind of relationship that humanity was created in with God is called a covenant, which really just means a promise-bound relationship. Like, 
those promises made explicit. So we broke our promises with God. We turned from God. We sought independence from Him. We sought to order our lives around a word other than His. And we, when we did this, a few things changed. One was that we became stuck in that lie. God doesn't love you. God's not out for your good. He's only out for Himself. He's looking to squish you if you can give a chance, right? We began to live out of that. That's become our presupposition. Now, some of us in this room believe that we came to that same conclusion, honestly, through deductive reasoning. Like, no, life says da 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 and so I have decided if there is a God, he's a wicked dude. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I know you think you came to that, honestly. The reality is, the Bible tells us, that is the most natural thing to believe in the world. That is the most natural thing to believe in the world. Because by nature, we now seek independence from God. By nature, we are alienated from Him. That is true of all of us. That is true of all of us. Some of us, some of us seek that independence in ways that, that seem uh, to make a little more sense to us. So we do our own thing, our own ways, by our own rules. We need to get out, right? Whether that's sex or money or power. And we don't care who we got to go through to get it. We do our own thing. Others of us, though, we, we seek our independence by trying to be good. Uh, I can make God. I can make other people like me. I, I, can, be, um, I can be the self-made man. I can be that. I can, I can do that, whether that has to do with business or morality. And here's the reality of all of that is that the self-made thing, God calls that independence. And independence he calls wicked. He calls it wicked. It's a state called sin. I know we think sinner is like a title that we earn. It's like we earn that title when we do really bad stuff. Okay? It isn't. We sin because we're sinners. In the Bible, the, the wicked are, are the promise breakers, the ones who, who you can't depend on. They're constantly breaking their promises. Sinners are those who seek their own way. Scoffers are the arrogant who think they can do fine apart from God's word. In other words, when he talks about the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers, he's talking about us. All of us. Every one of us. And when he says, walking in the council, standing in the way, or sitting in the seat... What he's talking about uh, is, um, he says, walking in the council. He means trusting in your own understanding of reality, how the world works. God, I don't need you to tell me how things work. I can do it just fine by myself. I can figure things out. I don't need you to tell me. Uh, when he talks about, um, when, when, he, when he talks about standing in the way of sinners, he's talking about ethics. God, I know that you say this, this, and this are wrong, but look, it's the 21st century. We gotta update some of these things. I don't think you've got it right. Independence. When when he when he talks about sitting in the sea of scoffers, he's talking about community. Like, who are my people? In other words, what will make me right? What will make me belong? Um, and and so in all of these things, what he's saying is, so long as you trust in yourself for these things, you will not flourish. If you trust. In yourself to understand reality, to define right and wrong, or to decide what makes you right, it will fail you. Listen to me. Think of this way. You and I tend to view, tend to, tend to view ourselves as neutral, right? We're fairly objective people. We can look at different information. We've got a clear set of lenses. And that information comes through, and then I process it, and I figure things out. The, the Bible says, actually, that... After we betray God, we now live from a presupposition, a starting point that is wrong. In other words, we aren't looking through clear lenses. Those lenses are skewed. They are twisted. And 
everything that comes in gets twisted by them. The, the Apostle Paul, one of the writers of the New Testament, says that now, by nature, we continually suppress the truth in unrighteousness. All of us, we suppress it. It comes in, we nah, don't like it. We push it down. In other words, the problem isn't the information. The problem is that God hasn't shown himself enough to me. Um, I, I haven't heard enough arguments for the sufficiency of God's word. Um, there's not a, you know, faith is too blind for me. I, I, I don't believe the evidence. The problem is not the information. It's that we're all stuck seeing it wrong. And that leads us to the other change after we betray God. It leads us to an independent end. Look, you know what happens when you break promises, right? We've all been betrayed. We've all betrayed other people. We've broken our promises. We've had our promise, like promises broken by someone else towards us. And you know that when that happens, you become guilty. And it's not something you can argue, right? It's not like, you, like that happens, you, you break the promise, you're supposed to like, sweetie, I, man, I know I promised to be faithful to you forever, but you don't know the pressure I've been under, right? Like, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. You broke the promise. It's done. Like, that, ooh, uh, betrayal. Betrayal always brings guilt, and the same is true with God. Look at verses 4 to 6. The wicked, God said, aren't like a growing tree. They're like chaff. Now, I know chaff. I'm not familiar with much of us. If you, if you take wheat, you work out the part of the wheat that you can actually eat what's left is called chaff. It's a little husk. It falls on the ground and melt. Normally, the wind comes in and blows it away. Just sweep it off. It's useless. It's worthless. Good. Gone. Done. Not going not gonna to be used. So he says that instead they are like chaff that aren't able to stand at the judgment. Their way will perish. Right? Listen, don't check out on me. I know you're tempted to check out on me. Please don't. This is super important. What he is saying is that so long as we keep seeking our own way, seeking our way apart from God and apart from his word, apart from dependence on him, we are betraying him and we are liable to judgment. He doesn't say only if your life looks like a train wreck. Right? saying this is true when we are independent of Him. When He talks about the judgment, the judgment is that time when, when the Scripture talks about the time when God is going to come and make the world right and get rid of wickedness, to get rid of sin, to get rid of pain, to, make, to restore the world where it was meant to. And if we are still in that state, then He will have to remove us as well. And He comes and He judges not according to whether you met your standards, or whether you were sincere enough in what you believed, but whether you met His standard of right and wrong, perfectly loving Him and others according to His definition of what love means and not yours or mine. Okay? Now, if you've been paying attention, you probably anticipate the problem right Because if we're stuck by nature as sinners, whether that looks good or not so good, we're stuck seeking our own way, then how can we avoid this end? How can we... How can we actually be blessed? How can we delight in God's word and 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 then uh, and, and meditate on it all the time? And by nature, we're convinced that it's a lie. Well, that brings us to parsing our path, because friends, this is where Jesus comes in. You know, most of us most of us believe that Christianity teaches that if we do the right things, if we obey the right rules, if we think the right thoughts, uh, if we think that Jesus is cool pretty good dude, like he, he hung out and he seemed to enjoy people and so do I, then, then God will like us if we believe those things, we'll get into heaven. Or maybe if that's not, as long as, as long as I tried pretty good and I was pretty sincere with what I did believe, I believe that's 
sometimes I really, really sincerely, you know, but then maybe I'll get in. Uh, that's not it at all. You see, blessedness comes with depending on God for our understanding of reality. Blessedness comes depending on God for discerning what is good and what isn't and for knowing what makes us right. But you and I are stuck in our independence. And so because humanity was stuck, God did not expect humanity to solve its problem. God came and solved our problem. God took on flesh in Jesus to rescue us. Listen to me. Jesus is not a good teacher. Okay? Jesus is not a good teacher. He does not give you that out. Uh, C.S. Lewis famously said it like, like, in that way. Like, he doesn't give you that out. He said crazy things like, I and the Father are one. Right? If you've seen me, you've seen God. Now some of you are like, oh yeah, yeah. But I, I don't like, I don't, I don't believe that he actually said those things. I, I just believe he said the things like, like, uh, like being really nice to people and loving people like yourself and all that stuff. Like that, that's what I choose to believe he said. Why? Why that and not the other? You can't have it both ways, friends. You can't pick and choose. Either, either he said what he said, or the dude is crazy. Like on the level of saying, hey, I'm a jelly donut. Or he just straight up lied to you. In which case, how do you know everything else he said wasn't a lie too? can't pick and choose. That is just you and you and me saying, I get to determine reality. All that shows is that we're stuck in the problem. Because humanity couldn't fix its problem. God took on humanity in Jesus. Jesus is fully God. We couldn't fix our problem. So instead, Jesus came and Jesus delighted in God's law perfectly. He did everything that was required of him. But, instead of blessedness, it's not what Jesus got. Jesus got judgment. Right? He took the judgment that we deserve. That's what the cross is about. Though he was innocent, he died to bear the weight of our betrayal before God. He did that so that when we place our faith in him, which again, that's, that's church talk. Placing our faith means to put your hopes in, to, to um, stop trusting in yourself, to give up on your attempts to make things right, to give up on your attempts to figure out the world. We instead, we, we place our faith in Jesus. And when we do that, we're united in him such that his perfect life, listen to me, his perfect life, becomes ours. His life, or his death for our betrayal, becomes our death for our betrayal before God. Do you see that? Jesus, the only one who was actually blessed, became cursed, so that you and I, who earned a curse, could be blessed. Christianity does not give you rules. You don't need them. You don't need rules. I'm not going to help you. We don't need rules. We need reconciliation. We don't need a program to follow. We need a person to trust. Trusting in Jesus is God's only way. Listen, it's His only way. Not like one of many, not one of a few. It's His only way to come into the blessedness that this passage talks about. Now, that said, what does this passage say to those who have been reconciled to God, right? Because we're talking about the essential practices of the Christian life. So what does this exactly say to those who have been reconciled to God through Jesus, to those who are Christians? Well, it gives us freedom to delight. Listen. If you're a Christian here this morning, you're probably listening to this passage going, Greg, that's great, but I don't need that. It's hard for me to enjoy God's Word. I certainly don't meditate on it day and night, right? Day and night means all the time. It's a poetic, it's embarrassing, it's a take-two offset, it's everything in between. It's like, 
say this. You and I can be free to delight in God's word because we know that we are reconciled to God, we're pleasing to God because we're reading it. Because we're doing it. Because we're obeying it. We delight in it because we know that we've already been reconciled to God through Jesus. Okay? It's not that if we read it enough or obey it this much that God's going to be okay with us. God is okay with you in Jesus. You cannot add anything to the work of Jesus. He did it all. And He gave it all so that you could have it all. God is pleased with us because of the righteousness of Jesus alone, and so we are free to delight in the words. And like that, what do we do? What do, we do? Okay, listen. Meditating on God's word day and night, all the time, it, mean, it, can, it probably means many things, but I know it means at least one thing. We've got to know it. It's kind of hard to meditate on it if you've never opened the book. Right? Christians are a people of the book. We order our lives around God's word, but we can't do that if we've never at the end of the day, what governs our beliefs about ourselves, about God, about the world, about our mission, is not what we think. It's not, uh, it, it's not a philosophical principle, and it's not some vacuous buzzword like love, or freedom, or, or justice. What governs our beliefs about ourselves, God, the world, and mission is God's self-revelation given in His Word. Does that mean we're going to like it when we read? No. No. Listen to me. If God never challenges you, if you're never corrected or disrupted by His Word, you aren't hearing it. Or you just simply tamed it. Okay? A God who is no bigger than your ideas, your values, your preferences, is not a God worth worshiping. That is not God. That is you bigger. That is you bigger. Awfully convenient. God doesn't ask anything of me. God. Nice. That's good. Have you ever been in a relationship with another person? Persons ask of us. So here's what I would ask of you, Christian. You need to get into the discipline of consistently reading the Bible. So I want to challenge you to try and simply take the next month. It's the next month, right? 30 days. I want you to commit to a seven-day week, four days, okay? To actually pick up the Bible and read it. If you've never done that, if it's intimidating to you, okay? Uh, we, we have a tool called the Cross-Training Bible Reading Plan. It's a big thing located on the connect table. Grab that. Or if you have a, an iPad, you go to the iBooks, you can download it. Just type in Cross-Training Bible Reading. It's there. Believe it or not, on the, on the iBook store, you, you can download it. It'll help you walk through how to do that. Okay? If you need help understanding the Bible, talk to your small group leader. Talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. Listen, the only way to ensure that you will never understand the Bible is to pretend that you already do. We all need help. I do. You think I don't have books sitting on my desk before I come here and talk on Sunday morning? A huge stack. Okay? God speaks through His Word. Sometimes it's in a way that is blatant, and sometimes, in fact, I would say most of the time, it is through the subtle, small shapings of us. But you cannot know God. You cannot truly know God without time in His Word, because you can't know anyone unless they reveal themselves to you. God has, in His Word, He's revealed His character, He's revealed His actions, He's revealed His promises, 
He's revealed his emotional life. He's, he's revealed his desires. And he's revealed his love for you in Jesus. So take up the reign. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise because you are a God that has spoken. And I ask that you would speak to us. Whether we are in this room and we've been Christians for a long time, or whether we're not yet Christians, I pray that you would speak to us. That you would work your gospel in your hearts. Jesus, we give you praise because you are the blessed one who took our prayers so that we might be blessed. So give us power by your spirit to live into that blessing and hear from you in your word and see our lives conform to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me, please. Find printed in your bulletin this morning our confession of faith. This is the time for we get to confess what we believe. Say it out loud, not only to each other, but to a watching world. We do this so that people can come and encounter Jesus, that they might know him through his word as he speaks, that we might move out and show him. And so this morning, we're, we're asking this great question for those of us who are Christians in this room. This is for us. Everybody else, my prayer is that it would be for you soon. So a Christian, I ask you, how is the word of God to be read and heard? With diligence, preparation, and prayer, so that we may accept it with faith, store it in our hearts, practice it in our lives. Amen. You may be seated. As we begin now, the time that we come to prepare our hearts to begin to celebrate as a family around the Lord's table. We first are called by God's word to confess our sins, not only to him, but to one another. And so week after week we do this not because we think that somehow this will appease our consciences or God wants us to feel guilty. We do this confession of sin corporately simply to stop pretending that we struggle with sin and to return to the only one who can do something with us, the one that we were made for in the first place, Jesus. And so this morning we're going to have a silent time confession of sin. And I'm going to frame this time through God's word. From the book of Hosea. Hear this. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly, faithlessly with me. Let us return now to the Lord and silently confess our sins.